Hello and welcome to episode 168 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we return to Northern Ireland to look at two related murders of young men involved with paramilitary organisations. I'm delighted that the show is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes it easy for you to cook delicious home-cooked meals from scratch. Choose your favourite recipes from a changing weekly menu and they'll deliver all the fresh, pre-portioned ingredients you need to cook them, straight to your door. No planning, no shopping, no food waste. The helping hand you need to cook fresh at home. As I'm still living the Alan Partridge dream in my holiday home for the next week or so before my move, The ease of cooking quick healthy food and not having to go to the supermarket is amazing for me. This week I loved the crisp cauliflower nuggets with a spicy bean stew. And next week the dinner I am looking forward to the most is roasted veggie and lentil jumble with toasted almonds. Go and check out the menu now. For the simple way to cook fresh, HelloFresh is offering you, as a listener to this podcast, 50% off your first box and 35% of your next three boxes. Head to hellofresh.co.uk and use the code CRIME to receive 50% off your first box and 35% off your next three. That is hellofresh.co.uk, the code CRIME, and you'll get 50% off your first box and 35% off the rest of the month. Head to hellofresh.co.uk now to choose your favourite recipes for your first box. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club, that's Steve Davis, and also to Julie Tunbridge who has increased her support. Thank you both so much, it's super appreciated. There is still time to buy tickets for the London Live show on Thursday the 30th of January with me and Mike from the Murder Mile podcast. It was sold out, but we've now moved to a much bigger venue and tickets are back on sale. Just search Fever Events to get your ticket for this week or the next London show on the 19th of February. Or get them at my website, uktruecrime.com. Whilst you are there, please take a look at the article from Phil Martin, who tells us about his recruitment company for ex-offenders called Exceed. That's at uktruecrime.com. Let's take a quick look at the music we were listening to, or not, at the time of today's events the 13th of March 2017. Ed Sheeran dominated the UK music charts with 14 tracks in the top 15 and was at number one with Shape of You. This was also number one in the US, where it remained at the top of the charts for 11 weeks. And in Australia, guess who had the number one album? Yep, you got it. In the news this month, well done to Disney for refusing to cut a gay moment in the film Beauty and the Beast for Malaysian censors, instead pulling the film from Malaysia. The world's largest dinosaur footprint at 1.7 metres was found in Kimberley, Western Australia, and in the UK, Michael Heseltine was sacked from his role as a government advisor following his rebellion against the government on the Brexit bill in the House of Lords the previous day. All seems so long ago now, doesn't it? Colin Dexter, author of the Morse books, died at 86, as did, tragically, 35-year-old endurance cyclist Michael Hall, after being struck by a car just south of Canberra, Australia, during the inaugural Indian Pacific Wheel Race on the 31st of March 2017, after covering just over 5,000 kilometres of the 5,500 
kilometre distance. As always, when I cover a case in Northern Ireland involving paramilitaries, I need to make it clear again that I'm not making any political statements and I acknowledge the awful crimes carried out by all sides. It was a lovely summer's day in Bangor, Northern Ireland. Painter and decorator, 35-year-old Colin Horner, was doing a little bit of shopping with his three-year-old son Oscar at Sainsbury's, leaving his partner of six years, Natasha, at home with their daughter. It was about 2.45pm as he was securing his son in his car seats that it happened. Colin wouldn't have seen the man, dressed all in black, park his maroon Ford Mondeo a little way from his own car and Nissan Pulsar and vault a small hedge to reach him. But as the man approached him with a gun in his hand, he would have known exactly what was about to happen. Colin fell to the ground as five shots were fired at him from close range, including when he was on the floor. His son, Oscar, was also knocked to the ground but luckily was not injured. Seconds later, the gunman raced back to his car and sped off. One witness, Alan Chambers, who arrived at the car park a few minutes after the shooting, later told RTE's Morning Island that the scene was surreal, saying, There was a casualty on the ground. There were about six paramedics around the person working very, very hard with CPR and also administering fluids to him. They worked on him for maybe 45 minutes. They put him onto a trolley and moved him into an ambulance and worked on him in the ambulance for another 20 minutes. And then the ambulance left the scene with a police escort. He said how it had been packed at Sainsbury's and that hundreds of people were there and had no idea about what had just happened. On a sunny bank holiday weekend, as a man lay fighting for his life, people were walking by blissfully unaware of what happened, carrying tins of paint and wallpaper under their arms, he said. But despite the best efforts of the paramedics, Colin could not be saved and he died. The pathologist later gave the cause of death as bullet wounds to the trunk, saying it was likely he was initially shot in the right thigh and after he collapsed to the ground, he was shot again in the back of his body. There was shock in the local community that this brutal murder had happened in broad daylight at the busy shopping centre in front of a three-year-old child. But of course, behind the headlines, it's the family and the close friends who've had their lives destroyed forever. Colin's partner Natasha made a poignant tribute online telling of their deep family love. She posted a picture of the family altogether, including Oscar, saying, The love in our family flows strong and deep, leaving us with memories to treasure and keep. Detectives quickly established that Colin had links with the Ulster Defence Association, or UDA, and believed that the answer to who killed Colin would be found within their organisation. Let's quickly remind ourselves about the UDA. The BBC says the following, and I quote, It was formed in 1971 as an umbrella group for a variety of loyalist groups. At its peak, it had tens of thousands of members and was the largest of the loyalist paramilitary organisations. The UDA's stated aims were to protect unionist communities from the attacks by Republican paramilitaries, but in reality it was little more than a criminal and sectarian gang. It killed hundreds of people during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It often claimed responsibility for sectarian murders by using the cover name the Ulster Freedom Fighters or UFF. 
I covered one of the worst atrocities carried out in the name of the UFF on an earlier podcast, if you recall, the Grey Steel Massacre, when gunmen entered a rural pub and opened fire, leaving eight people dead. Once again, all sides carried out horrific acts. It wasn't just the UDA. Initial investigations led detectives to believe that Collins' murder was closely connected to the killing of another man with links to the UDA and a good friend of Collins, 44-year-old Geordie Gilmore. He'd been murdered earlier that year when he was shot multiple times at around 2.15pm on March 13th in his car, driving along a residential street in Carrickfergus where many children played happily after school. Although Geordie made it to hospital, he died the following day from a catastrophic brain injury as a result of a bullet wound. Alison Warner, writing in the Irish Times, three days after Geordie Gilmore's death, provided some context about the difficulties Geordie had been experiencing with the UDA. Again, we need to go back a little for context, and I will quote directly from Alison's article. The South East Antrim UDA was considered the most deadly unit of the paramilitary organisation, continuing its activities long after other areas were said to be on ceasefire. Under the command of John Gregg, the unit that stretches from Rathcall to Larn, taken in Carrickfergus and Antrim Town, was responsible for numerous sectarian murders. However, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the South East Antrim UDA became better known for internal feuding and criminality. Greg was murdered along with his friend Rab Carson in 2003 after a long-running dispute with C Company boss Johnny Adair. His killing sparked a chain of events that resulted in Adair and his supporters being expelled from the organisation and fleeing to exile in Scotland. In 2007, the South East Antrim UDA announced it was breaking from the mainstream organisation. Geordie Gilmore, the commander in Carrick until three years ago, was said to have ordered the murder and disappearance of Mark Gawley in 2009, a vulnerable man whose body has never been recovered. In 2013, he was sentenced at Belfast Crown Court in relation to dishonesty, obtaining a loan for a huge property in Carrickfergus. Shortly afterwards, he moved to the Glenfield estate and Gilmore was stood down by the paramilitary group after questions were asked about the amount of drugs money he was pocketing without declaring it to the brigadier based in Rathcall. In June last year, an altercation between a number of women escalated tensions and the house of a former UDA prisoner was attacked. A short time later, around 100 men marched on Gilmore's home in an attempt to force him to leave the area. He refused, and then just 24 hours before he was shot and fatally wounded, he posted on Facebook, The days of the UDA putting people out of Carrick are over. That's the end of the quote. It's Adam back now. Had this Facebook message taunting the UDA directly led to his death? There are many reports of how Geordie had refused to be intimidated by the UDA. And just a summer before he died, he played a prominent role in a campaign to deface the UDA murals still found on many local streets. This act led to outbreaks of violence which had to be quelled by significant police activity. It is significant that when Geordie made the post on Facebook 
saying he wouldn't be chased out of Carrick Fergus. Two further comments on that message were made by Colin Horner. Colin said, No one fears them anymore. Fucking scum. My advice is to tell them to fuck off now and walk away from them. Their drug fines, harassment and bully boy tactics backfired on them now. Greed ruins everyone. This kind of open support, and also being a pallbearer at Geordie's funeral, it is alleged, made Colin too a target for the UDA. And so for the safety of his family, he left Carrick Fergus firstly for Belfast, and then Bangor, which is where, as we've heard, he actually lost his life. I think it's hard for those of us not actively living in these communities in Northern Ireland to understand just how hard it is to leave an organisation like the UDA. Some insight is provided by an interview given in November 2016, anonymously, by a member of the UDA to BBC News Northern Ireland's Kevin McGee. Asked why he just couldn't just leave the UDA, the disillusioned member said, It's hard to explain to people the threat level they have against you and your family. If you walk away, they'll torture the life out of you. They will damage your property. They'll attack members of your family. They'll attack you. It's impossible. You just can't get out. Although Gilmore's defiance towards the UDA was suspected by many to have led directly to his death, I should say at this point that three members of the UDA, who stood trial for the murder of Geordie Gilmore, were not convicted of his murder. After a lengthy judgment, which took the trial judge four and a half hours to deliver, Mr Justice McElindon said he had not been persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt about the guilt of all three in the murder. And as I record this in January 2020, nobody has been convicted of the murder of Geordie Gilmore. Okay, so with that context, let's return to the murder of Colin Horner. Detectives suspected it was related to his involvement with the UDA and links to Geordie Gilmore, but what now? Colin's family confirmed that he'd received specific death threats from the UDA and that is why he had left Carrick Fergus. And he wasn't the only one who'd been threatened due to his association with Geordie. Former soldier Joe Oliver alleged that 12 of his cars were burnt out in arson attacks on his business in Carrick Fergus as his son was a friend of George Gilmore's son who'd been quite outspoken about the UDA after his dad's death, calling them cowards. Joe Oliver claimed that both he and his son also received death threats from the South Antrim UDA. It was clear to detectives that Colin Horner had taken steps to increase his safety, including staying in public places where he was less likely to be attacked. This is why he'd shopped at a busy Sainsbury's on the day he was killed, which wasn't his normal supermarket of choice. Detectives believe that Colin had narrowly avoided being killed 11 days earlier when masked men were seen sitting in a car near his house. It was only when a neighbour became suspicious that it drove off, and it was that car that was eventually used in the murder. In this tight community, it didn't take detectives long to uncover suspects. This was made easier as those brought into custody had made so many basic mistakes and left so many clues suggesting their involvement. It was now for detectives about proving they were responsible for the murder. The first man was Dad, Alan Wilson, who was a sole carer for one of his children. He didn't have a criminal record, with his only conviction being for a minor road traffic offence 
and he claimed to not even know Colin Horner. But talking of basic mistakes, Wilson had used his own car, so in reality he didn't have too much bargaining power. So instead he said he hadn't been the gunman, and had not been responsible for organising any aspect of the murder. He maintained that he was reluctantly forced to be involved by someone more sinister. Ryan Smythe was next, who also only had convictions for minor road traffic offences. He too denied being the person who fired the fatal shots. The next man was Joseph Blair. He too said he wasn't the gunman, and claimed to have been influenced by more senior people. He said his only role was looking out for the others. Blair had a much more significant history of offending, with 36 previous convictions between 2002 and February 2018, including two robberies committed in 2003 and 2004. The final man was Robert Ralph, another man with a long record of over 30 convictions, including putting up paramilitary flags in April 2018. He was seen by detectives as having the least involvement in the plot and he'd missed eight calls on the morning of the murder, which suggested he was not aware of what was going to happen, or at least not closely involved in the detail. He also wasn't in any of the cars used in the murder, but he did admit to knowing that a firearm was potentially going to be used, and when this is the case, the potential implications are clear. There have been lots of mobile phone conversations between the four men, but of course, this is no evidence of guilt. But using cell site analysis, DNA evidence and witness statements, detectives pieced together what they thought had happened. They felt that 34-year-old Joseph Blair was a passenger in a surveillance car, a Ford Focus owned by Wilson, that was at Colin's house most of the day that he died. Photographic evidence placed it there, and as it was Wilson's own car, he was quickly traced. Cell site analysis and CCTV showed that the Ford Focus followed Colin's car and that Blair made a six-minute call to someone suspected to be the gunman, saying that Colin was on the move. When Colin was in Sainsbury's, Blair's phone record showed he'd made a number of calls. And when the murder took place, the Ford Focus was in the car park just a few feet away. Detectives believe it left the car park immediately afterwards, heading for the spot where the gunman's burnt-out car was later recovered, about 20 minutes after the murder, so they could pick up the gunman and take them to safety. Cell site analysis supported this, as it placed Blair at the scene of the gunman's car. There was further evidence. Detective uncovered CCTV evidence, showing that Wilson's Ford Focus and the maroon Ford Mondeo containing the gunman left the same premises together on the day of the murder. A cigarette in the gunman's burnt-out Ford Mondeo was found to come from Smythe, and DNA from drink cans placed Blair and Wilson in the Ford Focus. But despite all this evidence, the weakness of their case is that detectives did not know who had pulled the trigger, and even if they'd found the gunman. But the case taken to Belfast Crown Court was that all four were part of a joint enterprise involving the targeting and deliberate killing of Colin Horner. The prosecution accepted they were unable to pinpoint who had fired the gun and that there were likely to be others, not in court, who were also responsible for the murder. At the trial, on the very first morning, all four men who had previously pleaded not guilty changed their pleas to guilty of murder. 
Ryan Smythe and Alan Wilson were sentenced to 16 years in prison, while Joseph Blair was given 15 years and 6 months, and Robert Ralph 15 years. A man and a woman also pleaded guilty to withholding information about the murder and were given suspended sentences. On this podcast, we've heard a lot about defendants who show no respect for the families of those murdered. Unfortunately, this is another of these. And during the trial, the four men laughed, joked, waved, and gave the thumbs up to family and friends. They'd even sunk about as low as it's possible to go by taunting Colin's distraught mum by saying that after serving their time in jail, they will be back, but Horner won't. Outside court, Colin's partner Natasha said in a statement, I would like to thank my family and friends, PSNI, the PPS and court services. Knowing that the people responsible for Colin's death are now behind bars is a relief for me, my daughter, but more so my son, as he now knows that the bad guys are in jail and can't hurt him anymore. Leslie Horner, Colin's mum, who attended court with her sisters Angela and Heather, daughter Sophie, along with Colin's partner Natasha, said the family can now start to grieve and to try to rebuild their lives, she said. It's very difficult because Colin, his life is gone, they took his life. We will never see him again. But justice is done. At least there's four taken off the street. There's four useless wasters off the street. She said, there's no words to describe it, no words. To actually look at them and see that they murdered your child and they're standing laughing and turning round to the supporters in the dock. It just demolishes you. I hope now we can maybe start to try grieving for my son properly and rebuild some sort of life for me, my children and grandchildren. She described her grandson as a beautiful boy and said the youngster is going okay. There is a lot of love and a lot of support. We will look after him and fill his life with colour. She added, We had to be here today. We had to see justice for my son. We're relieved it hasn't gone on so long. We were expecting a big trial. I don't think happy is the right word to use, but we can now maybe start to build some sort of life. I just hope my son is up there looking down, dancing in the sky. Detective Chief Inspector Peter McKenna said, It's inconceivable that Colin's son, who was just a toddler at the time, had to witness his dad's murder, and this is a memory he will carry with him for the rest of his life. Colin was also the father of a little girl who was just two years old when her daddy was taken in such a callous manner. This was a premeditated murder, which I believe was linked to an ongoing South East Antrim UDA feud. The victim was followed throughout the day by a second vehicle, a black Ford Focus, in the lead up to his death, and this enabled the gunman to pull up in his Modeo at the supermarket and end Colin's life in a matter of seconds. The thugs responsible for this murder are hypocrites. You think they have a right to act as a judge, jury and executioner. They do not serve the best interests of the community and they have no place in our society. This reckless shooting took place in broad daylight on a bank holiday weekend in a busy supermarket car park which was packed with local shoppers and their children. These killers gave no regard to the trauma that they were causing to those who witnessed the brutal execution. The very normal routine of families buying food for Sunday dinners, barbecues and packed lunches for the week ahead turned into a nightmare 
as bullets were fired across the car park. This has been a long and complex investigation by detectives. I would like to pay tribute to Colin's mum, Leslie, and his partner, Natasha, for their calm and resolve throughout this process. Colin was a much-loved father, partner, son and friend, and whilst no sentence can bring him back, I hope that these convictions offer some comfort as they cope with their grief. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Whether you have children or not, I think we can all agree that someone who can kill a dad in front of his three-year-old son is just someone who can be barely thought of as human. Can you imagine the actual moment when the little boy realises that something is terribly wrong? Just a look of horror on his face. Just awful to think about. And why? Of course, we don't know all the details. But on the face of it, he was killed as he didn't want to be in the gang anymore. Pretty hard to comprehend, isn't it? When Colin's partner, Natasha, and family and friends answer the inevitable questions from the children when they're older, about why their adored daddy died. It all sounds very trivial, doesn't it? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group where we have almost 6,500 members. And to support this podcast, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you will find bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that is all for me for today. If you are joining me in London on Thursday, I'll see you there. You're around. Otherwise, don't forget to put in your order to HelloFresh and to check out the article from Phil Martin about the XSEED recruitment agency on UKTrueCrime.com. So I'm off to try again to order broadband via BT. Dealing with that company always makes me wonder how something so simple can be so complicated. So on that note, thank you so much for joining me. And I'll catch you next week. Stay classy.